How can we be change agents without burning ourselves out? Let's explore that together. The Cozy Robot Show. Hey, Cozy Robots. I'm Mike McCarg, and this is a show about how we understand our feelings and the world and how we use those things together to make this world a place we'd like to live in together. It's good to see everybody. I see all your comments rolling in. We are live right now on uh, YouTube and Facebook and Twitter uh, and Twitch all at the same time. And because we are live on four different platforms, the comments don't always uh, make it across. Most commenters tend to be on Facebook or YouTube. So if you're feeling left out at any point in the show, uh, you know, pop over to one of those other channels and see if more folks are there. If the Restream bot isn't doing its thing, uh, gosh, it's good to see everybody. So many folks online. Now, if you're listening later as a podcast, this podcast is also a live program that happens on Monday evenings at 5 Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. You can join us, uh, and I respond to your comments as the show goes on. Hey, Karen, good to see you. Um, and uh, really special, we have something after the Cozy Robot Show called the After Party, which uh, we do on our Discord server. Uh, which all Cozy Robots have access to our Discord server. And for tonight, after this show, in the after party, we are going to be playing the wacky trivia game Quiplash 3 together. So if you'd like to learn how to join us, uh, not just for the after party, but all through the week, we do lots of uh, social events and discussion and just fun stuff. You can learn all about that at CozyRobots.com. And I want to start this show by saying... I'm sorry. <laughs> we did not have a show last week. You know, I've been uh, working on so many new skills to make a new video show during a pandemic. I've learned about cameras and teleprompters and lighting rigs and real-time streaming. And as part of that effort, I built a computer in order to be able to handle the very uh, high system requirements to do real-time video streaming, and my brand new computer died on me. I had to order parts, and uh, even though the parts were under warranty, it was going to take a long time to replace them, or to get replacements. So I had to order new parts, and I wanted to say that right up front, not only that I'm sorry there wasn't a show, but uh, I'm so thankful to all of you who support this program by being Cozy Robots. Because of you, I didn't have to stress I could actually afford a new uh, replacement part for the computer because the show has a budget. So thank you so much uh, for making this show possible by participating, not only by viewing and not only by visiting our sponsors, uh, but for many of you also by being Cozy Robots. That just, it just means so much. Patrick, thank you for the compliment. Uh, Patrick just indicated they finished reading my new book, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, and said, OMG, so good, which I really appreciate. That did enjoy that book. Anyway, tonight I am really excited about this episode. We're talking about compassion fatigue, and I think that is such a relevant topic to go into right now because life is hard. <laughs> we want things to be better, and we want to find the energy to change things, largely because we're sensitive and empathetic people. And sensitivity and empathy help create understanding. They get us beyond our own perspective into understanding the life conditions and situations of other people. But the flip side 
of empathy and sensitivity is that it also makes us feel really tired. We feel exhausted. We feel emotionally wrung out when we look at all the challenges that we face in the world together. And so for tonight's show, we're going to talk about that together. Um, and we might as well just jump right into it with a segment we call Ask Mike About. We want to explore curiosity together on this program. And so we ask you to send in questions about different topics. Uh, and we'll start the show with that this week. Now, if you don't know about this, if you've been a listener to my old podcast, Ask Science Mike, or you're completely new to the Cozy Robot Show, I want you to know that you're a part of this program. So all you've got to do is go to CozyRobots.com and click the Ask a Question button in the menu, and you can learn how to send in your own source of curiosity that we can explore together on this program. And our first question this week comes from Dallas. Hey, Mike, it's Dallas Verity from the middle of the prairies in Canada. Um, just had a question for you about compassion fatigue. Um, I feel like myself and many of my friends are kind of going through this at, at the moment, um, or I didn't know it was called compassion fatigue, but, you know, fighting for justice and speaking out about different issues and trying to be active in things. Um, my biggest question, I guess, would be like, how do you deal with the compassion fatigue that other people around you feel? Um, sometimes I feel like I'm too much for people when I'm when I'm talking about these things or passionate, but I also feel like I can't stop talking about it or fighting for these causes because, again, I'm peak privilege. I and I want other people to have the same freedoms and liberty as American word, I guess. Um, as I do. Anyways, any thoughts on the topic would be fantastic. Thanks. You know, as I listened to your question, Dallas, I wondered for a moment if you have been watching me in my home. <laughs> wow. It's not only that we face compassion fatigue in ourselves and with our own feelings, because let's be honest, it's hard right now. What's hard? Everything is hard right now. Life is so full of challenges. We have a global pandemic. The effects of climate change are being felt more dramatically than ever with the, the almost certain prospect of getting more severe as time goes on. The world economy is facing significant challenges. The amount of stress everyone is under is causing lots of conflict and personal relationships across societal systems. There's virulent nationalist movements all across the United States and Europe. It's a really hard time to be a person. And we want to make things better. And we want to lean into those things that we are fortunate about. I'm like you, Dallas. I'm a very privileged person. I'm white. I'm American. I'm a man. I'm middle class. I have a lot of advantages in society that are unfair. Not that I have them, but that other people do not. And like you, I feel this sense of profound obligation to work to make things better, to make our world more fair for everyone, to look at 
how to make our society inclusive and truly based on equality. And that means I get sad a lot, Dallas. That means I get anxious. That means I feel overwhelmed by the magnitude of the challenges that we face and the seemingly infinitesimal emotional and cognitive resources I have to throw at those problems. But like you, I've noticed that when I talk about issues of great importance to me because I believe they are of pressing concern for the entire world, I've noticed the people I love and that I'm close to in my life begin to feel not just compassion fatigue, but a conversation fatigue. They don't want to talk about the issues that we face together in our world because like me, they're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed by the spread of a pandemic. They're overwhelmed by personal finances and they're overwhelmed by a sense of powerlessness. Because even when we're people of privilege, it seems as if the magnitude of the problem in our systems in society, our justice systems, our electoral systems, our economies, our education systems, these things seem so wildly overwhelming that we feel like we need to make plans. I make plans all the time about actions I could take regarding climate or criminal justice or feminism. But sometimes I plan so much without realizing it, I move into catastrophizing. Catastrophizing is a psychological defense mechanism, especially common among people with trauma backgrounds, wherein we imagine the worst possible things that could happen as a preemptive strike against the fear and grief that we feel. And I've noticed that I catastrophize over climate change and white supremacy at the dinner table with my family. And that becomes too much for my wife and for my children. It's not that my family is uninterested in matters of justice. Quite the contrary. We march together. My daughters are involved in their own action organizing work. They are involved with clubs with their peers that gather signatures on protests and and uh, petitions and and get out the vote by via text messaging campaigns even though they themselves are not old enough to vote so my family's not inactive on matters that are pressing but sometimes the way that i relate to the fears i have about the future in trying to control it through action become overwhelming so how do we deal with that well dallas i'm learning that too myself I think if my wife Jenny were in here, she would certainly tell you that I am learning this myself all the time. We have to strike a balance in our lives between organizing and planning and creating actions and executing those actions and then personal restorative actions. You know, I can get into a groove where I work long hours preparing for the kinds of things I make to share with the world, and then my downtime, I do almost exclusively justice organizing work. And I get so physically and emotionally tired that I burn out and I can't function anymore. 
So part of the reason we get compassion fatigue and provoke compassion fatigue in others is we fail to achieve a balance between trying to create a world we would all like to live in one day and savoring the fact that we have a life right now. And this restoration must include restorative social time. You know, there's a guest a little later in tonight's program, my friend Andre Henry. And Andre and I work together on all kinds of initiatives and organizing activities around justice. But Andre and I also laugh and we have a good time together. Andre is one of my closest friends. And there's something more sustainable about doing the important and necessary work that we are all trying to do together to make our world a better place. It comes more easily when it's done in relationship and in community. And when we understand it's something that we are doing for our collective quality of life, but it is not in and of itself our lives. You know, Talith, I think compassion fatigue is unavoidable. I think in times like this, when there are so many challenges that desperately need to be addressed, it's impossible not to sometimes go too far. I think it's better to say too much and go too far than to be inactive and say nothing. But I would advise you to learn as I am that in our lives, in our, our striving towards a more equal world, to seek balance and in that balance find rest, restoration, and relationship. You know, the Cozy Robot Show would not be possible with our, our wonderful sponsors. And tonight I'd like to tell you about BetterHelp, which is an online counseling service that I use that my wife Jenny uses, that one of my daughter uses. They have a teen counseling service that is wonderful. And over 1.2 million people have signed up for BetterHelp. And why? Because it's the easiest and most convenient way to get mental health support. It is perfectly adapted for this era of social distancing because you can text, you can chat, you can do calls, you can do video calls with a licensed expert that they find for you. One of the hardest things about engaging in therapy is finding a therapist, so BetterHelp does that for you. I use BetterHelp every single day, and you can get 10% off your first month with BetterHelp by going to betterhelp.com slash cozyrobots. Notice that's a new URL just for this show, betterhelp.com slash cozyrobots to get started today. And our other sponsor this week is uh, us. You know, we have a thing called the Overview Program, and our second flight is coming up in just a few weeks. Now, what do you do when you feel stuck in life? What do you do when you feel overwhelmed by changes or personal growth or ways that you are changing? I've spent the last 20 years working to build a science-based methodology to move through difficult life changes and challenges. And I structured that together into a program called the Overview Program. We do this in a group format, in groups of like 8 to 10, as well as one-on-one. -on -one. Of course, there 
are scholarships available, so don't worry about any income challenges you may be facing. Uh, but we work together to have collaborative troubleshooting towards life problems. You can learn more about that at overviewprogram.com where you can fill out an application and schedule a call to answer any questions that you may have about the program. If it's a fit, I'd love to work with you each and every week as part of the Overview Program. If we're going to talk about compassion fatigue, I wanted to talk to someone who's a true expert. That's my friend Andre Henry. Andre is a writer and a musician, and by his own admission, a troublemaker. He's the author of the Hope and Hard Pills email list, which is one of the most essential resources I've seen in racial justice and combating white supremacy. He's the coined the slogan, it doesn't have to be this way, and we looking at world change. And Andre is both a talented artist, a highly sensitive person, and a revolutionary. He organizes major initiatives to change the way that human society functions. And so I thought there could be no better person to explore how we care for our world while also caring for ourselves. So here's a conversation I recently had with Andre Henry. Andre, thanks for joining us on the Cozy Robot Show today. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I It's probably not any secret to you that you're not just one of my closest friends. You're also one of the people I most admire in the world because I think mm. so many people um, are frustrated with the way the world is and the challenges we face around all kinds of issues. Um, and uh, it seems like, you know, America, which doesn't have like an amazing track record on matters of race and ethnicity in the first place, <laughs> is like trying That's to go for thing. new lower and lower bars of, of just awfulness. And a yeah. lot of people are frustrated. A lot of people want things to be different, but not a lot of people are not only working at changing things, but doing so with vision and clarity and intent. And, uh, you know, I've so enjoyed just in the backyard hangs or before the pandemic and bars talking about what could be done and trying to, you know, understand yeah. more of your vision. And so as we're talking to people today who are frustrated with the world and want things to be differently and find that their efforts aren't effective or they try and they get tired. What I've noticed is that people who care about justice in some way, they tend to be sensitive. Like part of what happens that gets people caring about matters of identity they didn't once care about is empathy. And how have you yeah. seen that dynamic between a justice orientation and sensitivity play out in your work and in your life. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I'm, uh, I am one of the most sensitive people I know. <laughs> uh, I'm a very sensitive person and have always been a very sensitive person uh, to the point, like uh, when I was a boy, I just cried all the time. Mm. Like, like at, at in high school in my desk, I just sit at, sit at my desk with my head on my desk and just cry 
for no reason. So I've also been like a lifelong depressive my my whole life, mm. uh, which is we can come back to because a lot of a lot of people are like Andre gives me so much hope, <laughs> you know. And how are you so optimistic right now? I'm like I am not an optimist. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, so I say that to say like I remember uh, being what people called a crybaby as a kid, mm. and I remember being at a camping trip. Uh, in the Assemblies of God denominations version of the Boy Scouts, the Royal Rangers, I was at one of their camp, <laughs> camping trips. And I think um, me and a couple of friends snuck into somebody's tent and took their disposable camera and just took all the pictures. We just ran, just being like kids, right? And I remember, like, we got in so much trouble. And I remember... <laughs> The the commanders, the counselors knew exactly what they knew exactly what was going to happen when they were like, "You did a really bad thing, Andre." Like I was gonna, I was gonna cry, and they said, "And don't you go back to your tent and cry," <laughs> because it was it was that I cried that much that everyone knew that would be the thing. So I say all that to say I've always been a really sensitive person, and um, I think that most people watching right now. Uh, can probably relate that if if they care about the world if they care about things in the world that that gets really overwhelming because um as a kid i just i cared about everything but not in an outward way it was more like if someone said something about me i always took it to heart it was hard to differentiate an insult that someone would say like and differentiate that from like is that who i am mm -hmm. to is that person just a kid asshole mm -hmm. <laughs> you know um, and so it was this very internal way of caring about everything. But as I grew, as I grew into an, as I grew into an adult and learned to learned, or I, I shouldn't say learn because it makes it seem like it was very intentional, but like that, that sensitivity turned into compassion, I guess, turned it, it turned outward in some way to being able to care for others. Um, then <laughs> Then it then it came then it became caring about everything in an outward way. So caring about what happens to people that I don't even know, you know, caring about what happens to, you know, refugees, you know, when they try to, you know, claim asylum somewhere, or to a man that I didn't know in a city that I've never been to being murdered by the police. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, yeah, I think uh, in my own in my own life. And a part, I just want to name a part of what led to that sensitivity was actually uh, being introduced to the Enneagram in 2009, mm. um, where I began to learn uh, a lot just about different people's personality, not styles, right? The, the way that they are navigating the world. I read Richard Rohr's book on the Enneagram at the time, and it was really helpful to just I think that helped me to grow in understanding why some of the people in my life, um, why they, what their motivations were for doing the things that they did. Mm -hmm. Um, especially people who had caused me harm, you know, like I, I was able to think through like, Oh, like what they did hurt me, but it wasn't about me. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm. It, they weren't trying to do it. It wasn't personal. It was about their stuff. So I think that's when things started turning outward. So anyway, to answer the question, <laughs> I, I think that um, I've seen that in my own life by just 
now kind of living more aware of other people, more aware of what's going on in the world, and oftentimes taking it very, you know, sometimes it feels personal, mm -hmm. right? Like it feels like, why do, why do I care so much about this thing though, right? And why does it affect me so much? Because some people are able to detach in a way that I'm just not able to. Mm -hmm. um, and so that can make it, me being a lifelong depressive, me being one of the most sensitive people that I know, can really make it hard to relax. It can make it hard to calm down. Um, some days I do have those days where I'm just like, I'm going to just lay here on the floor because it feels like there's like a weight, you know, in my chest or something like that. Hmm. Oh, gosh. That resonates so much yeah. with me. I was in Royal Rangers, by the way, which uh, is funny. Oh, wait. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, because, you know, those those Boy Scouts, that's way too secular. Uh, <laughs> 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 but, um, you know, it, when we like... Um, when you talk about this this sense of feeling, you know, overwhelmed um, by the world, I, you know, there's there's times when I feel like I just can't function, um, right. and I care and I want things to be different, but I, I feel so overwhelmed by what's happening every day and. Sometimes I just yeah. like run out of my house, no plan. Um, you know what I mean? Like, do I just go yes. to Skid Row and just tell I drop, like, empty out my bank account and and then what? I don't know, but there, something. This, like, is, this is my home now. Something has like, to happen you know, like, other than how yeah. things are. Um, yeah. and, and it does. It seems so overwhelming. And what do you do when the world seems overwhelming like that. I mean, how do you find a way to balance work and rest and how do you renew or recover when the stakes that we're facing seem so high? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think this, this kind of takes me back to something I mentioned in passing of like, I, I am a very hopeful person, even though I'm not an optimist. Mm. And um, when I say that I'm hopeful, I mean that I'm very much aware of the potential that we have, no matter how small it, that chance might be, that millions of ordinary people in sustained nonviolent resistance against oppression and injustice can win. You know, it's the possibility that, you know, and I know that I know that it's not the biggest possibility <laughs> in the world, you know. Uh, best case scenario, we have around 50%, a 50% chance, mm. right, of creating the change that we want mm -hmm. um, through nonviolent struggle. But that really does keep me going, that there is this window of opportunity where if we are to do the work that we could win, right, um, and it is the, the, the conviction that I have that that history is not a story that's happening to us as like passive. Uh, we're not bystanders. We're not spectators. We are we are actual agents in history. We have so much agency to create the future, to write the stories that our children and grandchildren and you know um, you know just others you know in the future will study and read. <clears throat> 
those things really do uh, keep me going, mm. right? Um, but they don't keep me going in a way that's like, you know, wake up, post motivational quotes every day for people, run five miles, and all, you know, like, you know, not not in that way. It just makes it just keeps me from absolute despair, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it and it keeps reminding me that like the thing that inaction writes the story as well, right? And I've mentioned this before, but like when we look back on atrocities in history, we always ask. Or what was everybody else doing? What about the millions of other ordinary people in that country? What were they doing? And so, I mean, apathy is one way that inaction writes the story. But I think that despair is another way that that action can write that. I'm sorry. I think despair is another way that the story can be written. Um, despair is another paralyzer. It's another cause of inaction. So these things don't make me like muscle through, but I have my feelings, right? Like, I do lay on the floor sometimes and just weep, you know, and I feel my feelings about the ash falling from the sky because of the wildfires in California. And, you know, but then like, I always remember, you know, that as long as I'm alive, that I can try history, you know, that it is all of our, it's innate within us as human beings, we're able to write history together. And so that's why I try, you know? And that's also a way that I manage, I guess I manage that feeling of overwhelm is that when I started doing this work, I had watched Philando Castile bleed to death on Facebook Live after being shot by a police officer. And I was tired of feeling helpless. I was tired of feeling powerless. And I decided that I was gonna learn everything that I can about how does systemic racism work and how can ordinary people work together to fight it? Because I, I remembered, like, there used to be white-only signs all over the place in America, and they're not anymore, right? And actually acting, you know, against this, these injustices, actually fighting these injustices is a way that I manage the despair. Because I take away that feeling of power by using whatever agency I have mm-hmm. to confront it, you know? No matter how the, no matter how small the chances are that we might uh, win or not, so it's those are a couple things. And then I think like the third thing. No, I know the third thing is that I do try to, like, I try to uh, enjoy what I can. <clears throat> you know, mm. um, someone told me the other night when RGB died uh, that uh, you know they were like, "This is terrifying," and I was like, "Yeah, it is terrifying," and. They asked me, will, will everything ever go back to being fun? And I said, no, it, it'll never go back to just being fun again. Mm. But we can still have joy. And they said, I don't remember how, what, they said, what they said after that, but I remember having to expound on it some more. And so I said to them, like, you know, things feeling safe uh, and confident about the future, all of, all of those, those can't be prerequisites for joy. They can't be prerequisites for joy any more than, you know, the absolute end of Jim Crow could be a prerequisite for my ancestors creating jazz or the Lindy Hop, you know? Like, my, you know, Black people have been living in, under authoritarianism, under fascism, under totalitarianism, even on American soil, you know, since we were brought here. You know, and it doesn't mean that we excuse it and we just say, oh, it's no big deal. It's happened before. But 
it also means that like, to me, it means that, you know, it's, it's not something to, um, to throw up our hands at and give up, you know? Um, I think that, no, a while, a while ago, it was 2016, I, I took, I gave myself a graduation present for, for graduating from Fuller Seminary. And, um, I took a trip to Europe and that summer of 2016 was really brutal in America. You know, as far as police killings go, uh, we watched Alton Sterling die and Philando Castile die and, and J.R. Thomas and, and many others. And I remember being over there walking around in different cities in Europe and like singing as I walked down the street, just like, like a crazy person, <laughs> you know, just, just singing to myself. And I remember I went on a scavenger hunt in Barcelona for a churro or a churro was on one of, was one of the things on my scavenger hunt list. And I remember as I was eating this churro and walking by the beach in Barcelona and thinking like the ultimate goal of the kind of oppression that my people have seen in the world is to completely destroy our joy and completely destroy our, our ability to celebrate, to just have the space for joy. And I won't let them have that. They cannot, they can't take that from me. Donald Trump can't have it. You know, the Republican party can't have it. The eco-fascists can't have it. The neo-Nazis can't have it. The KKK, the proud boys, the boogaloo, none of them can have it. You know, they can't have that. It's mine. You know, um, I believe that <clears throat> I believe that life is meant to be enjoyed, you know, and to whatever extent I can, I'm going to. And so <laughs> uh, there are times when people call me or text me after six or eight p.m. and they want to uh, commiserate about the headlines. And I'm like, listen, I'm. I'm, wa- I'm watching Dragon Ball Z tonight. I'm not thinking about Donald Trump tonight. That's 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 what I'm doing. You know, I can worry about that. <laughs> I can I can worry about whatever racist shit Ron DeSantis is doing tomorrow morning. <laughs> it will be there. You know, and so I, I do try to make time for my guitar. I, I DJ. I take walks. I plan dance parties. I go and spend time with my friends, Mike and William. And, you know, like I'm, I, I make space for that. Mm. That's, that's a note I'd like to add to all of my friends watching right now who are white. Um, I like to imagine, even assume that, um, the friends of color in my life are already aware of the atrocity of white supremacy <laughs> in a way that I'm not. Um, yeah. and I, I, I don't know if you've noticed this in our relationship, but I tend to not bring up matters of white supremacy I've noticed or observed. If you bring no, something I never... up, I'll grieve with you, but I'm not going to be like, hey, did you hear about how this is terrible? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> No, that does not happen between us, but it does happen with many other friends. And I try to be gracious with like my white friends that do that with me. But I'm like, would you please not send me mm-hmm. whatever, whatever thing about racism or white supremacy that shocked you this morning, especially like when you have like when it's, you know, if your friend, if your black friend is William Matthews 
or Austin Channing Brown or something like that. Like these people know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like these people are writing books about this stuff, you know, like don't send your, don't send your people, your friends of color or your black friends, <laughs> you know, the latest, because it is, it is triggering. It's traumatizing. Or it's just like, okay, like, I'm literally planning an anti-racist revolution. Like, I don't want to stop and read this, Mm -hmm. you know, this new bill from some governor in a state that I don't live in. Like, I just, I'm an organizer. I don't, I don't need to, I don't have time to to read this. Yeah. And I, I, by the way, I'm not saying that, like, I'm not going, look at me so good. I'm saying, (laughs) I know there's a lot of white people watching. So (laughs) just, no, that's a good joke. No, I know we can do like, I, and yeah. that's actually something I'm really interested in, you know? Like, here's something I've noticed. People are sensitive and empathetic. And they become yeah. more and more and more aware of our world and the way it's structured. And frankly, the nearly universal injustice of human societies. And yeah. as they gain awareness, they become aware there's this other point of injustice. So maybe, you know, gosh, for people like me who are white and grew up evangelical we we, we start mm. from the ground floor right? <laughs> uh, just like whoa there's so much but then other people who, who maybe have different backgrounds you know they might already be aware and have been doing the work for years or decades on white supremacy or uh, they might be feminists who've been doing uh you know uh work around uh the patriarchy but they haven't actually gotten into womanism yet or um you know, or maybe climate justice is new to them. Like you've been doing social right. justice for a long time, but climate is new to you. And when that happens, inevitably people seek out expertise. They seek advocates who've been doing the work. And then they almost like their enthusiasm becomes a drain on this precious resource that is the emotional energy and time of the people who are leading change movements. How can how can those of us who are learning more about the world, how can we show up in a way that helps more than impairs? Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, as you were saying that, I saw this image of like, you know, a kid draws a picture in school and they want to come home and show like mom and dad. And you're like, hey, look, look at look look at what I drew. And sometimes I think that that is how it feels like. At least with at least with me that when people are like, like look, you know, look, look, look. I learned this, or I, I'm seeing this now. My eyes are being opened now. Or they're just like, can you believe this? And I'm like, send that stuff to the people who need it. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm already like. So you're, you know, people who have like friends of color, black friends who are aware, politically aware. <clears throat> they're already reading and studying and watching these videos and, and or just experiencing this stuff alone. Like, you know, I didn't have to read a book to know that systemic racism exists, mm-hmm. existed. I, mm-hmm. I knew racism existed. I just didn't have language for it. The books gave me language for my experiences. Right. But, you know, you probably have friends that actually need that information who are looking for that information, who don't know where to look, you know, give it to them, you know? And one thing that would be really helpful for me is, so, I mean, I, I decided one day that I was going to start speaking up about my experiences of racism because it seemed like so many people in my social circle 
were not convinced that racism was a real problem. And so I was like, well, I have a lot of experience experiencing racism. So I will give you my firsthand experience, right? So I say that to say, like, I kind of... I lament that there are a lot of folks that know of the work that I do and think of me as like a special individual, right. That are like, like I have some kind of superpower to, to do this kind of stuff. And I'm like, no, like I didn't know a bunch of stuff. I decided that I was going to learn about it and that I was going to disseminate that information. And so many people can do that too. And if more people would do that, then that would take a lot of pressure off of people like me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like <clears throat> I'm not going to argue with, you know, people's racist mm-hmm. friends, you know, so that's already one way that I'm not directly going to reach them. But if those are people in your social circle that you're not going to engage and that you're not going to educate and that you're not going to advocate in front of, or try to persuade or whatever, then who is reaching them? Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah. like there's this feedback loop of like, you know, person gets awakened or radicalized in some way and then gives that information back to the person who or back to the people that help do that instead of spreading that information further. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's a part of our culture where like we have this idea that there are these great individuals that get things done. There are these great individuals that move history along. And the truth is that like the change that we want to see in the world has to be into has to be implemented by millions of ordinary people, Mm. you know, people that people whose names will never be on monuments or in history books and stuff like that. That's Mm. always how it's been. Even the Gandhis and the Dr. Kings of history were surrounded by millions of other ordinary people. You know, I keep like joking around, like people think that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Abraham Lincoln, like had a tag team match against white supremacy (laughs) and like ended Jim Crow. Like they're like, you know, (laughs) <laughs> they just, what a visual <laughs> they just, you know abraham lincoln like body said white supremacy by ending slavery and then tagged in dr king who drop kicked it from the top rope right mm-hmm. and that was it but no there were millions of ordinary people out in the streets during the civil rights movement and that's what we need right now one of my mentors um uh wrote a book uh about like nonviolent struggle uh, because he uh, he led a movement that toppled the dictator, no big deal. Um, and one thing that that got me into doing this work and to pursuing that information was that he said in the book more than once, you know, it, it the cavalry is not coming from someplace else. Sorry, I was it has back. to I be. Ha- us. I have that book on the shelf behind us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He said, you know, but he said it has to be us. It has to be you. You know. Mm-hmm. And when when I read those words, I took that very seriously and I took that very personally. And that's what I'm saying to other people is that we can't allow all of this pressure to rest on, you know, the people that you admire as activists and organizers and change makers, you know. And I think that's the problem that happened with Ruth Bader Ginsburg is that when she passed recently, like it was devastating for many of us. You know, it was scary for many of us. But let's be honest about why it was so scary. Like why it was so hard, why it was so hard to hear that news. It's not because we're all personal friends with Ruth Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We can't mourn her as a person, Mm -hmm. you know, like 
that's not who she is. She's not, she's not a mother or sister, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, to us. And yes, she, she is a human being, but this is what, this is what makes that point even more is that there are plenty of human beings dying every single day and we're not devastated by it. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason why we're so devastated by the passing of Ruth Bader, Bader Ginsburg is because we understood her as a, a, a kind of, <clears throat> yeah, a stopgap between certain, you know, between the unfortunate political realities that would, that would, that would ensue after her seat was empty, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I, obviously she's also a, a feminist icon and all that kind of stuff. Like, but yeah, it's what, it's what she means to politically is what many, many of us felt when she passed. And to me, that says something about, you know, we still don't get it. We still don't understand that, like, yes, n- not many of us will become Supreme Court judges. So she's in a unique position to do something for our democracy and for freedom and justice in a way that many of us are not. However, the power t- to change the society does not reside at the top of these hierarchies and pyramids and structures. It re- it It is concentrated among the millions of people who don't believe that they have power. Mm -hmm. And the minute that we begin to understand that it's when millions of us begin to collectively say no to the ordinary routine violence of this society, of the status quo, that it'll change. Not only do we bring change, but we also begin to share the responsibility for implementing that change with people who we are usually just kind of like applauding, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that I lament is like, I post something on Twitter, like, you know, white people aren't our overseers and people are like, yeah, Andre, get them. And I'm like, thank you for the affirmation. That really does like, you know, there's a psychological, there's a psychological benefit to that, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> however, <laughs> you know, like, it's it's better. It's actually a better example is when I tweet something like, you know, the revolution depends on millions of ordinary outraged people, and people go, "Yes, I love the way that you used alliteration." And I'm like, "Okay, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, I did alliterate there, but I'm still kind of hoping that you might actually be a part of a revolution or start it. You know, be a part of starting that revolution." Thank you for the affirmation and for thinking that I'm great. But I think that you are great. And I would like for all of us to do something great together. You know? <laughs> you got me. Like I said, I'm done. <laughs> like, it's such a good point, And that's so funny. <laughs> the alliteration example of everything. Oh, God, that's perfect. <laughs> Yeah, that's that is the work getting people to realize like it's never one person. The one person right. when they do something exceptional is they remind millions of people of the power they already possess. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's exactly it. And that that would be a great support to people that we say are on the front lines of this, right? Is that we need more people on the front lines, mm. you know? And not just people on the front lines, but like, you know, the revolution needs some people who just, you know, make spreadsheets Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. and, 
move things from, you know, needs to be done, doing, done, mm-hmm. right? Like the revolution needs people who are just educating others. The revolution needs people who um, can code. The revolution needs people who can uh, cheerlead, who can lead chants, mm-hmm. you know, uh, people who can speak, people who can run cameras and, you know, make signs and write up policy and think about systems. Like there's so many ways for for people to to participate. And that is kind of the thing that we're fighting against is that a lot of us don't believe that we have a right to participate mm. in in our democracy in, in, in that way, right? Like not as a direct part, you know, the way that we think we participate is by voting, voting for others who will do the democracy stuff for us, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but when we take to the streets, that's democracy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? You know, when we say this is what we want, you know, and we're not going to shut up until we get it, that's democracy, mm-hmm. you know? Um, when we dream together about the world should look like, and we put that out there, when you know, all of that, all of that is is participating in our democracy, and we need to. You know, we have to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've experienced some body changes in the pandemic. <laughs> so when I pulled out my it yeah. doesn't have to be this way shirt to put on for this conversation, <laughs> I found out that I have somehow gotten physically larger during lockdown. <laughs> None of my clothes fit either. Sure, it was like it was like a mid-riff tank top now. I mean, it, it's a significant change. So out of respect for the message, I didn't <laughs> did not show up to like that. But um, for people who are, are wanting to be involved or wanting to do the work, who are wanting to be an advocate and be a change agent. Um, how can people get plugged in with what you're doing all the time? Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> I guess like if people were like, okay, I want to specifically work with what, what, with what Andre is doing, like the best way would be to join my email list because I'm always sending out like, first off, I send out an email every Saturday morning, <laughs> um, called hope and hard pills. And, I just send out a little blurb about what we need to think about if we really want to start a revolution. And when I talk about revolution, like, I don't mean like how Ben and Jerry's or Coke or whatever uses this word, right? Like, cause it's kind of gutted of its meaning, right? People use revolution as a synonym for exciting or sexy now. Right. You know, <laughs> it's like, damn market. No, I actually, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, literally, like, how can we create change? So whether you want to be an organizer or an activist, or you just want to be an informed person that volunteers for a local organization or, or, or joins a local Black Lives Matter chapter or something, like, I think that that's a great way to get involved. And, you know, I work with several movement groups strategizing around different things like voting around um, uh, police brutality and things like that. And I hope to be sending out stuff on my email list about those things when they go public as well. Um, And uh, I'm teaching a a course on, or actually I'm leading a workshop on civil resistance right now that's going to be ending soon. But we're going to reopen that probably sometime in the future. And all that stuff would go come through my mailing list, you know. 
So yeah. where can people sign up for that? Um, on my website, andrehenry.co. Right, that link will be down right below this video when you see this. <laughs> you can just go click. You don't have yeah. to remember anything. You can just go tap, click, whatever <laughs> device you're on. Go straight there. Join that email list. It is extraordinary. <laughs> Andre, unlike me, actually sends email to his email list. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, sign for a mail list and I'll email you occasionally when I remember and then promise I'll email you again soon and then don't. <laughs> that is Alexa, shut up. <laughs> no one's talking to you. <laughs> no one was talking to her. You know what it is? Alexa loves lists so much that when you said it, she was just like, oh, well, what? Are we talking about lists? <laughs> <laughs> did, did somebody say lists? Oh man! Yeah. Um. Actually, sometimes the mailing lists that you don't get anything from are pretty pretty dope because you're like, man, I don't have one more thing crowding my inbox. I will be in your inbox every week, <laughs> <laughs> every, every Saturday totally morning. Totally uh, Yeah, trying trying to help, just trying to help us understand like what do we need to do mm. to make this thing happen because we. We really do have to, um, I mean, I know that people don't like to think about it, but like what we need to do in order to, you know, fight back against any of these things that like really weigh so heavily, you know, to, to fight global warming, we got to dismantle the fossil fuel industry, you know, to see a racially just America. We've got to, we've got to look at the way that white supremacy is informing these different systems of our society and institutions. And we got to, we got to dismantle those mm -hmm. things. We got to reimagine how we're going to do these things. Everything has to change, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the hard pill about it. Like it's not it's not just a bunch of conversations with people who you know uh, are reluctant to believe. Uh, it's not just you know putting love and positive vibes out there. It's it's not just any of those things. It's actually <clears throat> dreaming together and working together in a wise and strategic way and a consistent and sustained way. You know, hmm. Andre, I believe that everyone can learn and grow and study and do the work, just like you said. And if everybody did grow and learn and study and put into practice what they learned, that that would uh, be less of a weight on folks like you. And yeah. I believe with every fiber of my being that you are truly special my friend and i think there's a reason so many people pay attention to you because that sensitive heart that is within you that leads you to have empathy and compassion and concern even for people you haven't met is a signal of hope and inspiration for other people so i appreciate you so much taking the time to talk with me today on this program and even more than that i really just appreciate that you're my friend thank you thanks mike yeah i love you andre is a good friend two things number one andre and i and some other friends have been working on something fun to do for halloween and that fun thing to do for halloween is vote so we put together a social campaign called uh, Vote Out the Villain, 
And you can go to VoteOutTheVillain.com to learn more about how you can don your best Halloween costume and head to the ballot box and save our democracy. So uh, check that out. Also, uh, this show, you know, you're watching live perhaps right now or listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or a podcast player. And you might not realize that this show gets broken apart into segments and then released on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram every week. So that interview with Andre will be released this week as a standalone clip on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. And we do that so it's easy for you to share things. You know, one of the biggest pieces of feedback I would get making Ask Science Mike is they people would hear a question and my answer and they would want to send that to somebody and they couldn't because it's hard to send someone a podcast so um just know that that is available and that's something uh that you can do so if you're listening or watching live just know that those segments come out throughout the week i sure enjoyed hearing that conversation with andre again he is so brilliant and so funny gosh I was laughing at the same points listening back to the conversation that I left in the conversation itself. And don't forget, friends, right now I'm about to head over to our Discord server for the after party. I'd love to see you there. Go to CozyRobots.com for more information. And this show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. And so I'd like to thank each and every Cozy Robot. The show is produced by Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. The theme song was written and recorded by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg, my daughters. Production support by Andrew Galecki. Production support and my assistant is Caitlin Hermstad, designed by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield. Set design by Jesse Lane Interiors. Wardrobe stylist and craft services, Jenny McCarg. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, and I can't wait to talk with you again next week. Take care, friends. The Cozy Robot Show.